The French Revolution, A History, by Thomas Carlyle, Volume 2, The Constitution, Book 3, The Tuileries, Chapter 6, Mirabeau. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Peter Dan. Book 3, Chapter 6, Mirabeau. The spirit of France waxes ever more acrid, fever-sick, towards the final outburst of dissolution and delirium. Suspicion rules all minds. Contending parties cannot now commingle, stand separated, sheer asunder, eyeing one another in most aguish mood of cold terror or hot rage. Counter-revolution, days of poniards, castrier duels, flight of mesdames, of monsieur and royalty. Journalism shrills ever louder its cry of alarm. The sleepless Dionysius' ear of the forty-eight sections, how feverishly quick has it grown, convulsing with strange pangs the whole sick body, as in such sleeplessness and sickness the ear will do. Since royalists get poniards made to order, and assume Motier is no better than he should be, shall not patriotism too, even of the indigent sort, have pikes, second-hand firelocks, in readiness for the worst? The anvils ring during this March month with hammering of pikes. A constitutional municipality promulgated its placard that no citizen except the active or cash citizen was entitled to have arms. But there rose instantly responsive such a tempest of astonishment from club and section that the constitutional placard almost next morning had to cover itself up and die away into inanity in a second improved edition. So the hammering continues, as all that it betokens does. Mark again how the extreme tip of the left is mounting in favour, if not in its own national hall, yet with the nation, especially with Paris. For in such universal panic of doubt, the opinion that is sure of itself, as the meagrest opinion may the soonest be, is the one to which all men will rally. Great is belief, were it never so meagre, and leads captive the doubting heart. Incorruptible Robespierre has been elected public accuser in our new courts of judicature. Virtuous Pétion, it is thought, may rise to be mayor. Cordelia Danton, called also by triumphant majorities, sits at the departmental council table, colleague there of Mirabeau. Of incorruptible Robespierre it was long ago predicted that he might go far. Mean, meagre mortal though he was, for doubt dwelt not in him. Under which circumstances ought not royalty likewise to cease doubting and begin deciding and acting? Royalty has always that sure trump card in its hand, flight out of Paris. Which sure trump card royalty, as we see, keeps ever and anon clutching at, grasping, and swashes it forth tentatively, yet never tables it, still puts it back again? Play it, O royalty, if there be a chance left, this seems it, and verily the last chance, and now every hour is rendering this a doubtfuller. Alas, one would so fain both fly and not fly, play one's card and have it to play. Royalty in all human likelihood will not play its trump card till the honours, one after one, be mainly lost, and such trumping of it prove to be the sudden finish of the game. 
Here, accordingly, a question always arises of the prophetic sort, which cannot now be answered. Suppose Mirabeau, with whom royalty takes deep counsel, as with a prime minister that cannot yet legally avow himself as such, had got his arrangements completed. Arrangements he has, far-stretching plans that dawn fitfully on us by fragments in the confused darkness. Thirty departments ready to sign loyal addresses of prescribed tenor. King carried out of Paris, but only to Compiègne and Rouen, hardly to Metz, since once for all no emigrant rabble shall take the lead in it, National Assembly consenting by dint of royal address, by management, by force of bouillet, to hear reason and follow thither. Was it so, on these terms, that Jacobinism and Mirabeau were then to grapple, in their Hercules and Typhon duel, death inevitable for the one or the other? The duel itself is determined on and sure, but on what terms? Much more, with what issue we in vain guess. It is a vague darkness all, unknown what is to be, unknown even what has already been. The giant Mirabeau walks in darkness, as we said, companionless on wild ways. What his thoughts during these months were, no record of biographer, no vague fils adoptif, will now ever disclose. To us, endeavouring to cast his horoscope, it of course remains doubly vague. There is one Herculean man in internecine duel with him. There is monster after monster. Emigrant noblesse return, sword on high, vaunting of their loyalty, never sullied, descending from the air like harpy swarms with ferocity, with obscene greed. Earthward there is the typhon of anarchy, political, religious, sprawling hundred-headed, say, with twenty-five million heads, wide as the area of France, fierce as frenzy, strong in very hunger. With these shall the serpent-queller do battle continually, and expect no rest. As for the king, he, as usual, will go wavering, chameleon-like, changing colour and purpose with the colour of his environment, good for no kingly use. On one royal person, on the queen only, can Mirabeau perhaps place dependence. It is possible the greatness of this man, not unskilled too in blandishments, courtiership and graceful adroitness, might, with most legitimate sorcery, fascinate the volatile queen and fix her to him. She has courage for all noble daring, an eye and a heart, the soul of Teresa's daughter. Fertile donc, it is fated, then, she passionately writes to her brother, that I, with the blood I am come of, with the sentiments I have, must live and die amongst such mortals? Alas, poor princess, yes. She is the only man, as Mirabeau observes, whom his majesty has about him. Of one other man, Mirabeau is still surer of himself. There lies his resources, sufficient or insufficient. Dim and great to the eye of prophecy looks the future. A perpetual life and death battle, confusion from above and from below. Mere confused darkness for us, with here and there some streak of faint lurid light. We see King, perhaps, laid aside, not tonsured, tonsuring as out of fashion now, but, say, sent away any whither with handsome annual allowance and stock of smith tools. We see a Queen and Dauphin, Regent and Minor, 
a queen mounted on horseback in the din of battles with Moriama pro rege nostro. Such a day, Mirabeau writes, may come. Din of battles, wars more than civil, confusion from above and from below. In such environment, the eye of prophecy sees Comte de Mirabeau like some cardinal de Retz stormfully maintain himself, with head all devising, heart all daring, if not victorious, yet unvanquished while life is left him. The specialties and issues of it no eye of prophecy can guess at. It is clouds, we repeat, and tempestuous night, and in the middle of it, now visible, far darting, now labouring in eclipse, is Mirabeau indomitably struggling to be cloud compeller. One can say that, had Mirabeau lived, the history of France and of the world had been different. Further, that the man would have needed, as few men ever did, the whole compass of that same art of daring, art de serre, which he so prized, and likewise that he, above all men then living, would have practised and manifested it. Finally, that some substantiality and no empty simulacrum of a formula would have been the result realised by him. A result you could have loved, a result you could have hated, by no likelihood a result you could only have rejected with closed lips and swept into quick forgetfulness forever, had Mirabeau lived one other year. End of Book 3, Chapter 6